This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1907, during the construction of the Brooklands motor racing track in Surrey, workmen uncovered the remains of a prehistoric village. The objects they found included a bronze bucket and a hoard of Roman coins. But perhaps the most interesting discovery of all was the remains of a furnace dating from 5th century BC and used for smelting iron. The Brooklands Furnace was the earliest evidence of iron production yet discovered in Britain. Until the beginning of the first millennium BC, tools had been mainly made from bronze. The introduction of ironworking to Europe in the following centuries was one of the great technological breakthroughs of history, and the beginning of the Iron Age was accompanied by significant changes in societies, lifestyles and cultures across the continent. With me to discuss the dawn of the European Iron Age are Timothy Champion, Professor of Archaeology at the University of Southampton, Sue Hamilton, Professor of Prehistory at the Institute of Archaeology, University College London, and Barry Cunliffe, Emeritus Professor of European Archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology at the University of Oxford. Tim Champion, prehistory is commonly divided into three eras, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. What exactly do those terms mean, and how did that classification originate? Well, the classification started in Denmark in the early 19th century as a means of trying to find order in the rapidly accumulating evidence of prehistory it was building up in what was then called the Museum of Northern Antiquities, which is now the National Museum of Denmark in Copenhagen. And it was the work of the curator called Christian Thompson who noticed that among this mass of material there were sort of three groups and with very little other lines of evidence about how to order them, he suggested that what we had was three successive phases where different materials were used as the prime material for making everyday tools and weapons. So a Stone Age, a Bronze Age and an Iron Age as represented in the finds they had in the museum. And that was how he displayed them in the museum. And that caught on very quickly, didn't it? Um, With some opposition at first, other people had other ideas derived from the classical or biblical um, chronologies, but... And what would they be? Um, well, in, in, in Britain, for instance, in England, um, we had uh, a history of Roman conquest with um, the conquest in 43 AD, and everything before that was lumped together as um, ancient British. Um, and there was a very short chronology. People didn't realise how long prehistory was. So the idea that you needed separate ages in a short prehistory, even that seemed strange to some people. But yes, it did eventually catch on, and by by about the 1860s, it was accepted by most people, and people were beginning to put absolute dates on it. We're interested this morning in the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Can you give us some approximation? of when that occurred. I realise these dates are not only long ago, but very approximate. But very approximate. Given that, yeah. Well, um, I think the first thing is it happened at slightly different times in different parts of Europe, but um, probably the earliest transition would be in southeast Europe and Greece from about 1050 BC and in Western Europe, including Britain, from about 750 BC. So, Hamilton, the Bronze Age 
began in Europe around 3000, 3300 BC. Let's consider, is that right? Let's consider the metal, well, around there, you correct mm. me, please do. Let's consider, but after that, let's consider the metal first of all. Tell us about bronze and how it's made and what significance it has. Well, I think the key thing about bronze is that it isn't iron, and I think it's very easy to lump metals together as if they all function in the same way. And conceptually, they may have been considered to be quite different things by prehistoric societies. So bronze is synthetic. It's a combination of copper as its main ingredient, and added to that is tin, um, maybe up to 8 or 9% of the mixture, and that takes us through to the later Bronze Age, till about maybe 1300 BC, when something else is added, which is lead, and it's added up to about 3%. So it's a synthetic material. It's made of several materials brought together. And the key to adding them is that it changes the quality of the copper. The copper is soft and malleable, and with some contamination, it becomes harder. So tin is added to make it harder, but too much tin will make it brittle. So there's a, a mixture that has to be achieved. When you add lead in addition, it makes it less viscous, much more fluid, much more easy to cast, and you can therefore do more once it's lead bronze. You can cast it, um, all bronze is cast, but by the time you get to lead, you can make more complicated shapes. And something else which is very important is that you can beat it. You can beat it into sheets of metal. You can revet it together. So you can make many different types of objects by the time we have lead bronze. Broadly, what was the significance of bronze over the, as it were, 2,000 years from about 3,300 BC to about 1,200 BC? In a broad sense, you have to also see that it starts off as copper. So in some places, you have copper first before you have it contaminated with the mixture. And, of course, copper is very soft, so the significance of it is potentially social as much as as a tool. Um, it's made into ornaments and smaller objects, which may be symbolic. By the time you've got tin added, you have potential to make more elaborate tools, um, daggers, for instance, if you want to call that a tool or a weapon or a symbol, and jewellery. We have ornament horizons in the Middle Bronze Age, so people have ways of adorning and distinguishing themselves. But it really takes until the Late Bronze Age when you have lead to get a full repertoire of tools. So by that stage, metal is a facilitator in a very broad way in terms of warfare, armoury and daily tools for craftspeople. We, the, a lot of the bronze findings are very splendid and I, I read of a society of warrior aristocratic elites either in fortresses or in settlements uh, and this was part of not only their ornamentation but their show of wealth and their show of power. Can you develop that? Well, by the early Bronze Age, we have metal, which... Early Bronze Age, we're talking about... It, it would vary, but uh, by 2000 BC, you've um, got established communities. By 1800 BC, in Britain, for instance, you would call that early Bronze Age. Right. So during that period, we have a small-scale use of metal, but it is found in some extremely rich burials with what I'd call exotica. So you would have beaten golden objects, um, bronze daggers, but you'd also have amber beads, shale beads, um, faience, which is a technology using contaminated glass to make blue glass. And these are objects which are symbolic of the power of individual people who are buried um, under tumuli 
in the early Bronze Age. So there is an emphasis on identifying people in death with bronze as a, an elite material. As we go into the Middle Bronze Age, it's quite patchy. Um, different parts of Europe have different evidence of social stratigraphy. But by the time we get to the Late Bronze Age, quite clearly, again, metal workers being used to distinguish um, warrior burials in particular. Um, but by the Late Bronze Age, there's um, a new ideology in terms of most of the burials are cremated burials, and there's a lot of aligned changes alongside um, the, the use of bronze to identify warriors um, and also craftspeople by ranges of tools. Barry Cunliffe, the, first of all, just to develop this idea of the societies, the, the I, I sort of skipped through with a couple of sentences. Can you develop that? What, what were these societies over those 2,000 years? Can you give us more detail about that? Well, I think ev everywhere... Um, where you've got people living together. They, they develop uh, ways of, of um, articulating with each other, ways of articulating with their neighbours. So you get a palimpsest of, of different groups uh, relating to each other, and it, it's, it's a very, very complex picture across Europe. So um, uh, really, um, most of these societies, most, most humans, are, are acquisitive. Uh, they 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 like to acquire materials partly because it shows their status, partly because some of these materials are, are beautiful. So societies necessarily have to develop a connectivity one one with another with another, um, so that gifts are given to maintain good relationships. Those gifts are often these rare raw materials. And so. Are we talking about a time of barter here then? You're talking really <coughs> about um, gift giving, I think. This is probably the best way to look at it at this stage. Pre-coinage. Oh, way, way pre-coinage. And way, um, trade is not quite the correct word. It's a bit too precise a word. It's much more an exchange system. Uh, and we, we talk about reciprocal exchange, that uh, you give me a gift, I give you a gift in return. And that's the way that materials flow from one society to another. Are we talking about small, isolated uh, populations, uh, groups here around settlements with one chief here and another chief 50 miles away? And, and I just would like some idea of the sort of social map. I know it's a big ask, but there you go. It, it's a very difficult one to answer because uh, archaeology is an imprecise art. Uh, but the general model, I think, is that there were big men, there were chieftains, and, and that they were... Um, the centre of, of um, lar larger groups, and that, um, but you might have um, uh, one big man who um, is revered by an, a number of surrounding big men. So it's that kind of society. It's, it's not a, a very complex society at this stage, but it has a degree of complexity. And I've emphasised the word warrior. Is that worth emphasising? Uh, warrior, n the, the, the warrior um, is um, a kind of. Um, Aspiration, I suspect, in, in many of these societies, in that um, they would try and present themselves in that way with, with warrior gear in, in their burials. Certainly by the time you get into the, the, the Bronze Age, late Bronze Age, um, warrior gear was very, very uh, dominant in the archaeological record. Swords, um, shields, uh, headgear, bronze... Um, um, plates for the chest and and so on. So you were you're dressing up as a warrior. Uh, how much you were actually fighting is another matter. Although there is evidence of a fair amount of aggression, but you were presenting yourself as a warrior. 
One thing that struck me uh, um, very strongly reading for this program was the elaboration of the trade routes. As Sue's pointed out, uh, in bronze we're talking about copper and tin and perhaps lead, and lead, certainly not perhaps, and lead later, copper and tin. These are found in small quantities, uh, very rarely in the same place, often at great distances. And so to get the stuff together, let alone the technology of actually turning it into bronze, was quite a quite a business. Can you talk about these trade routes? They do seem to be quite wonderful. Yes, I, uh, to me that's one of the most exciting things about archaeology yeah. is the, the networks that link people. Uh, and that, that tends to be the focus of a lot of research at the moment. Um, let's just go back a bit to, let's say, the third millennium and uh, there was a source of jadeite, a beautiful green stone in the eastern Alps and people made axes, polished axes from that. Those jadeite axes got just about everywhere in Western Europe. They're right up in northern Scotland, for example. Um, we're talking about 4,000, 3,000 BC. So there must have been very complex networks of exchange, and we can trace them by the distribution of these axes all over Western Europe. You can see how the rivers were important. There were root nodes joining one one route to another. Um, Mainly sea tra- water transport, um, um, wasn't it? Um, yes, a, a lot of cross-land... Uh, on along the river routes and across right. interfluves, but also by sea. Sea was ve- very important. Atlantic was very important. Um, but so so you've got these networks. They exist. Um, they're there by the time that people discover copper and, the, and then bronze. And uh, to start with, uh, as Sue was saying, um, copper and bronze is they're just another material uh, that can be acquired and can show your status. After all. It's bright and shiny and it's it's magic to, to look at it um, so so that the copper moves into these existing networks uh, but because as you say these metals copper and tin particularly very very rare or comparatively rare um, the movement of these materials becomes as the materials as copper and bronze uh, become desirable uh, so the networks that enable them to move become more and more complex, and other materials uh, hop into those like amber and jet and so on. Uh, Tim, sorry to learn dates on you again, but can you give us some... <laughs> I date mine. Can you give us some idea when the Bronze Age came to an end? And uh, the, there's something called what, the Bronze Age collapse or the Bronze Collapse. Can you just introduce us to that? Um Try the the. It's certainly true that if you look at um, Southeast Europe, Greece, and the Near East, there was a major collapse of a lot of the more complex societies in, towards the end of the second millennium. For, so, for instance, the, the the world of Mycenaean Greece, which is a Bronze Age society but a very elaborate one, um, collapsed somewhere around you know, around eleven hundred or just before. And there, BC, mm. and there are other comparable collapses of complex palace-organised societies around the Near East. And it does look as though in that part of the East Mediterranean, the Near East, something quite dramatic happened to cause the collapse of a lot of these interlinked... These societies were all interlinked and were trading with each other, sometimes allied with each other, sometimes fighting each other, but the whole system seems to have collapsed somewhere towards the end of the second millennium. Do we know why? Um, I think it's one of the big problems, no. There's all sorts of explanations that people have suggested, including climatic change or environmental destruction caused by over-exploitation or or internal uh, revolution by the exploited peasantry 
uh, or alternatively external invasions caused by, but then what caused the external invaders to invade? So uh, no, probably no generally agreed explanation for what looks like um, a, a major event. Quite soon after that, iron began to appear. It had appeared before. We know that it was well from you. We know that you, that it was my. It was it was around sometime in some places in 1600 BC. Is that right? Or, well, I think or 1800 BC. Recent research, I think, would suggest even earlier. Yeah. Now. Um, the earliest iron that we know of, it, well, there are suggestions that it could be as, even as early as 7,000 BC, but yeah. all the early... Is that iron got out of meteorites? Yes, all oh. the early objects are meteoritic iron, we can know because it's got a very high nickel content, which isn't matched by any terrestrial iron. Mm. But in a way that's a bit misleading because this is native iron which can be simply worked, doesn't need smelting, it can be worked at very low temperature. What is really different is the development of a technology that smelts the iron from the iron ore. And there, um, recent research is beginning to suggest that it's perhaps rather earlier than we'd thought, with um, evidence perhaps from India going back to as early as 1800 BC, some sites in the Near East perhaps even as early as 2500 or a bit earlier. So, interestingly, there's a knowledge of how to do it but it's not really exploited for perhaps as much as 1,500 or even 2,000 years before it becomes really common. What all of you are saying, these ages overlay each other. Stone is still there in bronze, bronze is still in the Iron Age, stone is still there in the Iron Age, bone is... and so on and so forth. We're talking, still talking generalisations, but but they do make a certain sense to Hamilton. So can we get some idea when iron began to appear in Europe and appear to have elbowed out bronze. I'm sorry about the crudeness of that uh, phrase. Well, first of all, when it appears, it's by about 1200 BC, there is iron in um, the Mediterranean, um, Greece, for instance. It's becoming more present in Italy between about 1000 BC through to about 900 um, in northern Italy and in Etruria. So there's a a bit of a background there that's gradual. But I think what's most interesting is that suddenly, round about um, 1100 BC or the 11th century BC, it's cropping up in a lot of places. And we're getting more and more detail on it, either by the presence of slag, which is the waste, or bloom, which is the material which um, is produced through smelting, um, or um, hammer scaling from annealing and beating the iron. So there's a range of things. It's not just the artefacts, but odd finds of different parts of its manufacture. And be it France, Central Europe, Britain, we're beginning to get those finds round about um, the 11th century BC. And this is really much earlier than we ever imagined. And we're getting um, blooms that weigh um, a kilogram, two kilograms. So this is the product that you anneal um, to make the iron. So it's reasonably substantial. But what it doesn't do is really replace in a major way. So it's um, odd tools, axes, or maybe iron rivets in a bronze tool. Um, So combinations of materials. And really it takes down to about... uh, 500 BC for iron to be very regularly there to be used for swords and a range of agricultural tools. So it's actually 
quite quick in its um, small-scale appearance and then quite slow to really pick up. And, of course, you'd have to say, well, why? Um, iron's very abundant. Um, it's not like copper. It's not like tin. It's completely available in most places and where settlement is because copper and tin are often where settlement is not. So iron corresponds with the best agricultural land. Um, it's in places where there are lots of people. So why is it so slow? And it's what Tim's alluded to. It's the most amazing technology. It is not intuitive in any way. Um, to, to smelt copper, it, it's coloured, you can see it, it melts, uh, it flows into a crucible, it's all completely intuitive, you have a golden liquid, but iron, oh my goodness, you know, it doesn't melt, you'd have to melt the impurity out, you're left with a sort of ugly bit of cauliflower in your, your furnace, you have to bang it and beat it to get the rest of the impurities out, and it's a dark material, it's dark matter, so I think that's why um, it, it's so useful because it's abundant, but it is completely mysterious and magical <laughs> to Barry, actually create it. Sorry. Kind of, so this was this was a difficult difficult technology. I said at the uh, beginning of the program uh, that this was a big revolution, uh, technological revolution. Uh, so can we develop that idea? It, is it difficult technology, and how, how, in, in what way was it a revolution? What could it do, as it were, that bronze, the stone, and bone couldn't? Mm. Well, um, it is a difficult te technology. Um, you are not using... It, it was much as Sue said, you're not, you're not using extra high temperatures or different, very different techniques. You're using much the same range of techniques. Um, but it, it isn't as, as clear-cut. You, you, you get this curious um, substance which you, you then have to really work on. Um, so the knowledge of that technology, the knowledge is is what what really fascinates me. How did that knowledge spread, yeah. um, and Wasn't where it did it spread from? The old old view, and and I think there's still quite a lot of good sense in it. Is the Hittites were producing iron in in quite a lot of uh, in quite quantity. Um, they were. Um, it, Tutankhamun has got an iron dagger and a couple of iron bracelets uh, in the 14th century in his tomb. They probably came from the Hittites in Anatolia. And um, you get the Assyrians writing to the Hittites saying, can we have some iron now? And the Hittites writing back saying, well, no, sorry, it's, it's not the right time for making iron. And we, we'll get round to it, we'll send you some eventually. But here's a dagger to keep you quiet for a while. So, so um, uh, it, was, it looks fairly closely guarded. And, and then, as I said, uh, the technology um, spreads much more rapidly and much more quickly and um, that may partly be uh, it's very easy to, to jump on the bandwagon and say it's because but um, one of the things that we have to take bear in mind is breakdown of this Hittite community in, in Asia Minor um, uh, might well have disrupted this tin supply uh, coming from Afghanistan um, tin is rare um, tin uh, if you um, diminish the quantity of tin, you're, you're more ready, ready to take up these new technologies which might just be a bit more difficult. And, and once you've done it, of course, you've got a material that is infinitely better in many ways uh, than bronze. Tim Champion, can you tell us in what ways it was infinitely better than bronze? At the beginning, probably not much, but certainly once they'd mastered the techniques of how to work iron... Um, was that difficult? I mean, did you have a small core of, of uh, people, men, I presume, uh, working it out over a long time and finding out 
various levels of beating and heating and so on. Well, I think this is, this is one of the things we don't really know. It's, it's the uh, we don't know quite where it started. We don't know quite when it started. And in some ways, the interesting question is why they didn't do it earlier. Because there's certainly the, the ability to do it, but they didn't. And I suspect it may be because actually it was labour intensive, but also quite difficult and very very different from the casting technologies of uh, copper and bronze and gold. Um, for whatever reason, um, it did take quite a long time to master the techniques of the, the black, first of all, the smelting to produce raw iron, but then the blacksmithing techniques to turn that into uh, workable tools. But once you'd done that and you learned how to um, 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 incorporate just about the right amount of carbon to harden the iron, you could produce objects which were much harder, capable of being much sharper, much longer lasting and hence much more effective as both weapons and tools. Can you give us some specific examples on how they changed things over a few hundred years, Tim? Um, well, you, for, in, in the early um, stages, you see some of the earliest iron objects are copying bronze, so some of the earliest iron swords um, become what are made in exactly the same fashion as the latest bronze sword, so that there's a sort of imitation of that, but that's not necessarily the best way to use it. And I think eventually we find the techniques of amalgamate of, of using different qualities of iron, so you harden the edge of a sword, uh, which is something you just can't do in the same way with bronze, it's especially hardened uh, metal along the blade edge. Barry, I'd like to get into the uh, nuts and bolts of this, mm. about what uh, changes this brought about, what the iron was doing better than or superior to or different in, from bronze and because it has been talked of as a technical revolution well actually sort of let's have it what did they what happened okay um with it was um, a more effective metal for cutting to start with uh, you could kill people more easily um and you could chop your wood more easily it's it, it's it's a better metal one, once you've mastered it once you've as, as tim said once you've understood that there are different sorts of iron and you've got to communicate that sense of different sorts of iron and your um, skilled craftsman has got to be able to choose the different kind of iron for the right sort of job but one, once that is done um, then you can use um, iron, for example, for... Um, you, you can't, of course, cast iron at this stage. Um, you can't reach those temperatures, so it, it's all wrought iron. Um, you can use it to make, for example, tyres on, on wheels. Um, you can actually make an iron tyre, you can heat it, it expands, you can drop it over the felly of a spoked wheel and it will shrink onto the wheel. Now that, that's a very sophisticated technology. You couldn't do that with bronze. You could use bronze in a different way on a wheel. But um, that, that really is very sophisticated, making a wheel in the same way that a wheelwright would in the 19th century. You could use the same technology, you can make barrels in, in the same way. Um, one of the things I think is, is um, quite important that iron will allow you to do as well is to make long nails, long, strong nails. And uh, that enables you to do things with carpentry that you couldn't do before, particularly in shipbuilding. And I think the use of iron in shipbuilding is something that uh, we really haven't looked at enough and that that does revolutionise in many ways um, travel by sea. How? Oh. 
Uh, well, it means you can make bigger, stronger boats. Um, Caesar, um, looking, uh, this is a bit later, first century BC, but looking at the ships of the Veneti, um, says they've got these massive foot-square timbers and nails as thick as a man's thumb, which they hammer through the the, uh, the timbers and 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 uh, keep the the strakes on on the uh, the ribs and so on. And you can make really big, strong boats that are capable of Atlantic sailing. And the trade networks had uh, were fading away. The old trade networks—they either they weren't needed, or there are several interpretations mm. of that uh, mm. event, aren't there? Really? Yes. Oh, you still needed um, copper. You still needed uh, tin, and uh, to to make uh, luxury goods, uh, to make uh, sheet uh, bronze for cauldrons and buckets and things like that. So, so you still needed those. Um, the tin trade was uh, still a very important one, and the Greeks write about the tin trade getting tin from the Atlantic countries, particularly Britain. Um, so those those networks existed, but um, some archaeologists write about the de- the democratization that iron brings. Uh, as as we said, it's it's local; you can find it everywhere. Um, you know, it's the Chairman Mao attitude, uh, getting every Chinese peasant to make iron in their back gardens. Um, it, it means that everyone can have access uh, very easily to metal. It's a much cheaper thing, um, but. Um, uh, the trade trade changes. Trade is always there. Acquisition is always there. And if it's not um, focused on one material in particular, the focus changes to another material. Sue so Hamilton. So now we for a while bronze and iron. Well, for a long time, bronze and iron coexisted. Was was it, Can you give us the sense, as specific as you can make it, the way that iron was was replacing bronze or advancing on bronze? Things were happening with iron that bronze could not do. Well, first of all, it does release bronze to do other things, and we have some of our best masterpieces of Latin or Celtic art or whatever you wish to call it from Iron Age Britain, um, which come out of the fact that bronze can take up um, the development of, of um, using making shield, well, shields are made, enamelled objects and bronze harness equipment. So it releases um, craftspeople to focus on bronze in a different way. In terms of tools that change things, as Barry was talking, I was thinking of a few more to add, which really do come in um, by about 500 BC. There's agricultural tools. Um, for instance, ploughs get iron shares, which means that you can cut the, the soil um, more easily on heavy soils, clays, for instance. So the Iron Age is very much uh, a period when more landscape is taken up and more difficult soils. It also affects how you take the harvest in, which is very key to supporting populations, because by the middle Iron Age we have bill hooks for actually cutting um, the corn, um, and then by the late Iron Age we, we actually have sickles. So the speed of agricultural um, production and surplus is changed by it and I was interested in Barry's uh, discussion of the nails because I think about nails for the um, large centres of the late Iron Age which we have across Europe and to some extent in Britain which have um, huge ramparts around them which Caesar describes, the Wall of the Gauls which have checkerboards of wood nailed together at every joint and then filled up with earth and wood which make the most amazing barriers and would be incredibly impressive as it were iron studded walls um, surrounding the settlements of the later Iron Age or some of the major ones so, Tim, let's move towards the impact on society now, if we can, the people there. And, well, we, we, we can 
take that from extract that from what you from what you've been saying but still d- did iron occupy a different place in society what different what differences did it bring to society I think one of the key differences is that as I think Sue's already said it's local iron is in fact one of the most common elements in the earth's crust and is pretty well everywhere in Europe has got access to workable iron so you don't need access to these long distance trade routes to get metal um, so it is, and certainly by the middle of the Iron Age in much of Western Europe, it's becoming pretty common. Uh, it's there. Much of it must have been worked locally, but by the end of the Iron Age, you're beginning to see major centres of production of better iron emerging. So it, it does become much more readily available as a tool, and it's partly, as you were saying, in these knock-on effects, the, the producing of tools for other purposes. So that by the middle or later part of the Iron Age, you've got a toolkit which everybody would recognise now. Axes, adzes, hammers, chisels, brasps, files, saws, everything except the screwdriver, which is a much later invention. But they're there as recognisable tools with the impact on everything from agriculture to carpentry to leather working and that must have transformed the whole productive capacity of society can we develop that very kindly please can you tell us how society changed i'm trying to pursue mm-hmm. this idea of it changing society being revol- like as it were mm-hmm. the next big one perhaps was the industrial revolution mm-hmm. but let's uh, anyway so can you s- develop how it changed society over two or three hundred years we're, we're right there you go well i think there were major changes in, in society but i don't think they were the result of iron Right. I think that, that's the issue. Um, there were many, many factors that were at work on European society uh, in the first millennium, which is basically what we're talking about. Um, uh, Tim sort of have explained how iron contributes to that, but it's only one of the contributing things. And if I wanted to sort out a, you know, a couple of issues that were actually changing society, um, I would say it's all this con- connectivity, again, um, link- links with other people, um, a sort of globalisation of Europe taking place. Um, the horse, the acquisition of the, the really efficient riding horse from the east, um, comes in slowly, but it really gets underway about 800, um, and you, you can see them in, in the animal bones. Um, Pontic steppe horses coming in with um, sort of culture that brings them into the great Hungarian plain and then being exchanged as items of in, immense prestige a good riding horse with all its gear properly trained is a very valuable thing and one finds those moving into society in the west and uh, horse riding taking over as a, an item of, of um, display uh, in, in the s- social structure um, the other, that, that's, let's say roughly around 800 then the other thing that happens that um, really does change society is the, the links with the Mediterranean develop and uh, remember in uh, this time in the Mediterranean you're getting uh, the Etruscans are still there, you're getting the Greeks and the Rome, uh, and the um, uh, Phoenicians um, wanting to establish trading uh, networks with barbarian Europe to get raw materials and manpower and around about 600 Greek colonies founded on the Mediterranean coast of France and those colonies trading Greek gear and Greek ideas and Greek standards uh, into barbarian Europe and these being taken up by local communities. So lots of things affecting Europe. Yes, so there's a, a broad movement there, but mm. to, to narrow it again mm. to, uh, to our mouton, as it were, Tim Champion, let's, can you talk about how iron changed farming in Britain and how farming changed society? 
I think we have to look a little bit further back, back in, if we're looking mainly at Western Europe or Britain in particular, looking back into the Middle Bronze Age. I think, up, although we've had agriculture of some sort since the early Neolithic, perhaps a couple of thousand years, it's really only from about 1500 BC that we get intensive organised landscapes, field systems, droveways, wells, water, for the intensive management of cattle and sheep, but also intensive production of um, cereal crops. And that from then onwards through the rest of the Late Bronze Age and through the Iron Age, it does look as though management of the land and control of land or the labour or the products of the land uh, are becoming increasingly important as elements in um, social economy. Uh, for instance, one another thing that you get is the first evidence for textile production. So she, instead of eating the sheep or drinking the milk, you can turn them into wool, which you can then turn into textiles which can be traded. And another industry is uh, salt so foods can be preserved or either stored or traded and we get plenty of evidence for storage of food so can, foods and foodstuffs look as though they're becoming increasingly important and uh, uh, the impact of iron on that would be to contribute to the productive capacity of a landscape which is being used more to produce food for a variety of purposes. So, Sue Hamilton, go and develop this change in communities. I mean, what sort of settlements were there in the Iron Age? If we can stick to this country, it just... Well, I think Britain's a marvellous country to stick to because it's had such an intensive study of Iron Age settlement. And one of the things that's so striking is how variable it is. And increasingly with... um, archaeology, developer archaeology, where new landscapes have archaeologists going in, we're finding all sorts of niches of the landscape with settlement and settlement structures. So it varies from enclosed individual farmsteads, with quite substantial enclosures around them, to open settlements in eastern Britain, and which are virtually, you describe them as hamlets. So we have a range of individual and clustered settlements, and we do have things at bigger scales. We have the biggest monuments of the Iron Age, which are, in fact, they're really one of the biggest monuments of British prehistory, which are hill forts. Um, much discussion as to what they're about. They come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but quite clearly they are collective constructions. They would take many people to construct them, and in some way they represent communities. So we have those. And then by the end of the Iron Age, we've got what we call territorial opida. Um, it's the, the Latin means town. Uh, it's not a town like we'd see in a, a Greek or a Roman way, but these are huge areas. I mean, Colchester, Iron Age Colchester, something like 2,000 hectares. It takes up a vast area, um, which is defined by banks and ditches. And then within it, I think what's very important is there's zonation. There's different areas of settlement, craft, burial, and this is something that we see across uh, later Iron Age Europe, the development of monumental enclosures of the landscape which have zonated space within them. And, of course, that's one definition of a town um, by a modern geographer's standards, that it takes, um, it has subdivision with different craft areas, etc. So I think there is quite a lot going on to do with subdivision of space, craft and regionality. Can, we're moving towards the end now, uh, but I, 
there are these these two, the Hallstatt and Latin cultures. I don't think we've got time to do both of them, but it's just developing the idea of the sort of change that was brought about by Iron Age. And you brought in other very strong uh, uh, elements in, in this. But so can we can we just develop that further in and, and keep it to iron, as it were? Hmm. Well, Hallstatt and Latin are. are pieces of archaeological terminology, Hallstatt referring to the early part of the Iron Age and Latin uh, to the middle and later part of the Iron Age. Um, The biggest change, I think, if one's looking on a European um, basis, and the change takes place, uh, let's say, around about 500 BC, um, between Hallstatt and Latin, the biggest change, I think, is um, the most obvious change is the development of, of art styles, uh, the development of um, real focus um, foci for particular craftsmen who are being very, very innovative in terms of art and craft to serve elites to start with. And this is where we get what, what is broadly called Celtic art coming in, this, this wonderful free um, design, um, tendril-like design, plant-like design with a mystery about it um, uh, creeping in. And th- this, this comes about as the result of um, an interaction in Europe. It's a, a real barbarian European development, an interaction between local craft skills and, and desires uh, emerging from the, old, uh, the beginning of the Iron Age and an overlay of Etruscan and Greek and possibly even Eastern Scythian things and uh, a melding, a, a creation of a real identity for the first time. Tim Champion, when did, uh, when did the Iron Age, when did it sort of come to an end and what replaced it? I think this isn't really a matter of sort of conventional terminology in different mm. parts of Europe. Um, by convention, we don't really talk about the Iron Age of Greece. We begin to talk about archaic and classical Greece, although it is effectively Iron Age Greece. Um, for much of northern and central Europe, um, the conventional end is um, the beginnings of the Roman conquest. So the 50s BC in France, perhaps AD 43 in southern England, but in those northern areas which escaped the Roman conquest, um, the Iron Age... Why are we calling it the end of the Iron Age, then? Uh, it's really just a conventional terminology for organising the archaeological evidence. If we're thinking more, not just in chronological terms, but about technology, um, some people would say we were living in the Iron Age until possibly the Industrial Revolution, or even that might be the late Iron Age, and we've only just recently moved into the Electronic Age. Uh, but, for instance, in Scandinavia, the Vikings are late Iron Age. And finally, and, and briefly, Sue, um, is there, do you think there's much, so much more... To, I don't know whether we've got time for this. So much more to discover in the Iron Age, it'll change our view of it. Well, I think particularly the ethnographies of iron workers are very interesting because conceptually iron is seen as a, a very mystical material which is gendered and very, um, uh, well, it's part of a, a mythology which I think we can investigate via ethnography. Well, thank you very much for that. Thank you, Sue Hamilton, Tim Champion and Barry Cunliffe. Uh, next week we'll be talking about a Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, and thank you very much for listening.